Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how can we thank you enough for your mercy? The mercy that intervened to rescue us when we were still dead in sin and bound for hell. And you had mercy on us. Your mercies never run out. They're new every morning, including this morning. And you said that we can receive mercy at your throne of grace. And so, Lord, you know all the hearts this morning that are listening and the mercy that we need for today. Uh, Whatever we're facing, whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're concerned about, Lord, there's mercy from you for that for us. And so we thank you that we can rest in that mercy. Lord, I pray that anyone who has never tasted your mercy, experienced it firsthand in Christ, Lord, even today would come to know your saving mercy, Lord, that they would renounce any other hope of being right with you than your mercy and the work of Christ. And Lord, we need your mercy as we open your word together. Lord, we need your grace to overcome distractions and to be able to focus. We need your grace to work in our hearts so that they are responsive and ready to follow whatever your word says. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do some people need the gospel more than others? We know the right answer in our heads. We would agree that everyone needs God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin and sin. But our text for today assumes there will be some people who aren't fully convinced of how desperately we all need the power of God to be rescued. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. Before Paul explains the good news of salvation, he presents the bad news of our fallen condition. In chapter 1, we saw that we suppress the truth of God and we refuse to honor and thank God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and exchange the glory of God for worthless substitutes. And as symptoms of our rejection of God and replacing him with other things, we saw a pretty dark list of things that are not proper, along with hearty approval for those who practice things which ought not to be done. And Paul anticipates some pushback to what he's just written in chapter 1. He knows there will be people reading or hearing what he's just said who are thinking, wait a minute, I don't do those bad things. And I don't approve of those who do them. I believe such things are wrong. And I agree that people like that deserve God's judgment. And so Paul addresses those who see themselves as morally respectable people and are perhaps feeling morally superior 
to the kind of corrupt people we saw in Romans chapter 1. So let's start reading in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, so he's connecting what he's just said at the end of Romans 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The New Living Translation paraphrases these verses. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. So again, Paul is addressing anyone who might be thinking, wow, those people in chapter 1 are a mess. They really need the gospel. And that's true. But it's all too possible to go from there to, I'm not as bad as they are. In fact, I'm a pretty decent person. Which Paul's about to show is not true. And then to make a huge leap to, you know, maybe it doesn't take quite as much grace to rescue someone like me as it does to rescue big sinners like them. So what does Paul mean when he says, you do the same things? Is he saying all people commit all 23 of the sins he listed in chapter 1? And the answer is no. As John Stott says this, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, which means shortcoming or fault. Namely, our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient toward ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. So here's some examples. Uh, think, first of all, of Nathan confronting David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. 
he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, you are the man. So David expresses righteous indignation that anyone would steal a poor man's lamb. Who does that? And yet he had stolen a man's wife and had her husband killed besides. So he's in no position to condemn someone else when he's guilty of the same thing. Or think of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. We're going to go to Matthew 19. Jesus gives him a little quiz. And the rich man, who's a ruler, thinks he's doing a pretty good job keeping all the commandments ever since his youth. And so Jesus says this. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, if Jesus had asked, have you ever bowed down to an idol? He would have said, of course not. And if Jesus had asked, do you love God more than your money? Who's going to say, no, I love my money more than God? If the rich young ruler ever had a chance to read Romans 1, he would condemn those who bow down before images of birds, animals, and reptiles. And yet, he's also guilty of idolatry. He Loves money more than God. That's no less dishonoring than bowing in front of an image of an animal. Or think of the various lawmakers a couple weeks ago denouncing Hamas for slaughtering babies in Israel and yet support a woman's supposed right to kill their preborn babies in the womb. How's that any different? And we might subtly be tempted to think, well, I'm glad I'm not like those hypocrites. And yet in our own various ways we have shown we also suppress truth and unrighteousness. We withhold honor and thanks from God. We exchange the glory of God for worthless substitutes. We turn away from the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns. And so we really are no better than the people we read about in Romans 1 or anybody else. Paul asks a rhetorical question of those who are ready to judge others. Do you suppose you will escape the judgment of God? In verse 2, he says, we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Those things we saw, 23 things in Romans 1. But if you're guilty of the same kinds of sin or the same kinds of root sins, why would you think you'd be exempt from God's judgment? So he continues in verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So God is kind to all people in his common grace. Jesus said that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. 
God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says in Luke 6, God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is forbearing and patient. But notice the goal. His kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Which means a spiritual U-turn. A complete reversal of direction. So years ago, I was driving in downtown Minneapolis. And at one point, there's three or four lanes of cars all coming right at me. Now, I could have thought, wow, these people are all going the wrong way. <laughs> but God gave me the presence of mind to realize, oh, I'm probably the one going the wrong way on a one-way street. So I did a very quick U-turn to get going in the right direction because I was going in the wrong direction. And that's repentance. We're all going away from God. We're going in the wrong direction. We're going toward sin and eventually toward hell. And repentance is turning around, heading the right direction toward God. And that's the reason God is so kind. He's allowing time for repentance to happen. But we can't presume on God's kindness and patience. The fact that he withholds judgment does not mean his judgment will never come. And we see that in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. Because the sentence, or the judgment against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. So it's like, I'm getting away with it. Look, I'm okay. I can sin and no consequences. And the writer, of, I mean, Solomon is saying, don't be so sure. <laughs> it's only temporary. And then judgment will fall. Or 2 Peter 3.9, very similar to Romans 2.5. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow or slack about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. So there it is again. God's kindness, his patience. He's waiting to have Christ return. Why? Not because he's indifferent. Not because he's unable to make it happen. He's kindly allowing time for people to repent before it's too late. Back in Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So a heart that stubbornly refuses to repent even though God is patiently, kindly offering the opportunity to repent, you stubbornly resist that? Storing up future wrath, which remember is God's holy hatred of sin and evil and his righteous commitment to punish it appropriately. So what does Paul mean when he says according to deeds or according to 
works. According to means that which agrees with or harmonizes with. So works or deeds confirm or deny the reality of saving faith. Works don't earn salvation. That's what Romans and Galatians are all about. You cannot earn salvation by anything you do. Exclamation point. So works don't earn salvation, but they express salvation. Deeds don't deserve salvation. They demonstrate the reality of it. And so all the way back to Martin Luther and the Reformers, there's a, say, a phrase that says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us never alone, but always accompanied by love and good works. Saved by faith alone, and the faith that saves us never alone. It's never by itself, not just bare faith. It's the kind of faith that shows it's real always by love and good deeds. So think of a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and don't forget 10. So my sparks learn Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Saw that. Why not? Be so that no one may boast. What's the next verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. So do you see it? Not saved by works, but saved unto works. Works are not the cause, they're the fruit or the effect of a heart that's been changed by God's saving grace. So here's John Stott again. Does Paul begin by declaring that salvation is by faith alone and then destroy his own gospel by saying that it's by good works after all? No, Paul is not contradicting himself. What he is affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. The reason for this is that the day of judgment will be a public occasion. Its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce it and vindicate it. The divine judgment is going on secretly all the time as people range themselves for or against Christ. But on the last day, its results will be made public. Such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we have done and have been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. The apostles James and Paul both teach the same truth, that authentic saving faith invariably issues or produces good works. And if it does not, it is dead. So sometimes you hear, you know, somehow James is contradicting Paul. And they're both saying, no, if faith is real, it produces works. So let's read about this judgment according to works, starting in verse 7. God's going to render to each person according to his works. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. 
eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So Paul talks about two outcomes of God's judgment. Those who pursue good will experience glory, honor, peace, immortality, and eternal life as their destiny. But, verse 8, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness will experience wrath and indignation. So what do we do with those verses? And sincere Christians have come to different conclusions about these verses. It's hard to decide between the two options because they're both true. So one view is Paul is saying, if you could do good, you would be in good shape. But look at Romans 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. They have become useless. There is none who does good. So if you could do good, you're in good shape. Nobody does good. So that's not going to work. Or look at verse 13, just to step ahead for a second. Verse 13. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. One of the brothers in our church family showed me an email from a relative a couple weeks ago using that verse, actually misusing that verse, and saying, see, Keep the law, you'll be justified before God. But look at 3.20. Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So either Paul is schizophrenic and contradicting himself all over the place between chapter 2 and chapter 3, or he's just talking about if it was possible to do good and keep the law, You'd be in good shape, but no one can, no one does. It's actually impossible for any fallen sinner to do it. So that way of getting right with God is not going to happen. So that's the one view. The other way to see it is to understand them as describing the fruit of obedience in the lives of believers as evidence they have experienced the miracle of a new birth and now have a new heart. And of course, both of those things are true. So that's why it's hard to decide. <laughs> so you just talking about hypothetically, if you could do this, but you can't, or you actually will start doing this if you have a new heart because you're a believer in Christ. And Paul says the reason God will deal this way is because there's no partiality with him. So maybe you've seen court, a courthouse that has a statue of a blindfolded woman holding a set of scales. The idea behind that is justice doesn't see who a person is or what they look like. The only thing that matters is weighing the evidence. And God will show no favoritism to anyone, Jewish or non-Jewish ethnic groups, rich or poor, or any other differences that exist between people. All will be judged with perfect fairness and absolute justice. But someone might be thinking... 
But it's not fair that people who don't have access to the law of God, like the Ten Commandments, will be judged in the same way as people who do have the law. So Paul's going to address that. We're going to see through Romans, Paul anticipates how his readers think. Especially when we get to chapter 9. <laughs> yeah, heads up on that. He knows what kind of objections, what kind of questions, what kind of doubts we might have. And so he comes back around and says, are you thinking about this? Are you worried about this? Are you concerned about this? Well, let me explain. So he's going to address that same question. No partiality is God for all who have sinned, verse 12, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, non-Jewish ethnic groups, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So the basic point is God will judge people based on the light they have access to. We actually already saw that in Romans 1, didn't we? What about that poor aborigine that's never heard well, they actually have heard, they have seen creation saying there's a God who's great and glorious and worthy of honor and thanks. Everybody's seen that. Everyone's without excuse. You're accountable for what you know about the universe. And here he's saying, even if you don't have the Ten Commandments, if you've never seen that, you have a conscience. You have a moral compass that, even though it's flawed, knows the difference between right and wrong. And none of us even measure up to our own standards of what we know is right and wrong. And Paul's saying, so if you didn't have the law, you're still going to be guilty without the law. And if you do have the law, if you have access to God's moral will in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, you're even more accountable for knowing and obeying what God has said. And you're going to go under God's judgment for that. But the bottom line is, no one's righteous. No one keeps God's standards, Paul is relentlessly building a case to get to verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's where he's going in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Everybody, no matter who you are, whatever your religious background is, under sin. Therefore, everybody needs the gospel. That's where he's going. Lord, well, we'll talk about that more next week in chapter 3. Excuse me, at the end of chapter 2. So as we close, we need to be aware that all of us will stand before God as judge and give an account of our lives. Remember Hebrews 9.27 is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. So what are you counting on on that day to be accepted by God? That God would approve you. That God would welcome you into his heaven instead of judge you and condemn you. 
So I want to look at a story Jesus told about two ways to answer that all-important question. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Verse 9. And he also told this parable, who's the audience, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Sounds like Romans 2, doesn't it? Compared to those people in one, we're righteous. We kind of looked down on them. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So we're kind of already biased when we hear those two words because Pharisee, 2,000 years later, in Christian circles, those are the bad guys, right? They're the hypocrites. They're the people stuck up on all the rules and regulations and burdens and And so we tend to think negatively of Pharisees and then tax collectors, even though we don't like the IRS particularly now, we kind of feel sorry for them. They're like, I bet they're deep down inside they're they're nice people. They probably love their kids and you know they're 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 basically okay. They just are in a less than ideal job. And that is not how this audience the first time heard this story. They are thinking, Pharisee is respectable, religious, he cares about following God, and tax collectors are low-life sinners who are selling out our country to the Romans. So that's the bad guys in the story, and the good guy in the first century was the Pharisee. So need that background to get where Jesus is going to go. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Pretty impressive. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, right in God's sight, rather than the other. They both weren't right in God's sight. Just one of them was. Looking to your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own look what I did, look what I don't do. Not justified going home this afternoon. God be merciful to me, the sinner, justified going home this afternoon. Those are the only choices. Your own righteousness or mercy from Christ. None of us are good enough to be accepted by a holy God. None of us can do anything that would make up for our sin. The only hope for any of us is Jesus. 
His death on the cross is the only way a righteous God could forgive sin without compromising his righteousness. His resurrection from the dead shows he's done everything necessary to remove our sins and restore us to God. So turn away from sin. Do that repent. Do that U-turn. And trust in Jesus. This is what it says in Acts 13. It says, Paul preaching. He says, Therefore let it be known to you that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed, literally justified. Do you have that footnote in your Bible? Justified. From all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. So I can't justify myself. I can't be in a right Status, a right standing before God by anything I can do. It's through Jesus I can be justified. It's through Jesus I can be forgiven. He's the only way. This is going to happen every week, maybe. So just, this is a chance to just relax and I'll try to get my breath and we'll just keep plugging along, okay? Um, for those who are trusting in Jesus, these verses point to a verse that's coming later in Romans 12, verse 3. It says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's right after the verse that says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which tells us part of being transformed, which means radically changed, not just a little bit of change, big change, by the renewing of our minds, how we think, having new ways of thinking that are replacing old ways of thinking, is we now have corrected vision of how we see ourselves. So I just went to the eye doctor a couple weeks ago. I had to change my prescription again. And why did optometrists just do that? Because you're not seeing things accurately. You're not seeing the way things are. You're seeing things in a distorted way. Am I saying it right, Dave? So Paul's saying, you and I have an eye problem. We see ourselves, when we're looking at the mirror, we see everything bigger than what's really there. We're out of touch with the reality. We always see ourselves bigger than we think we should. Right? Paul, there's no verse that says, you should think more highly of yourself than you think. That's the self-esteem movement that came and went in secular psychology. I don't know if the Christian community has caught up yet. The secular world already knows that was not that valuable. But there's no verse that's saying, oh, don't think so lowly of yourself. But there are lots of verses. I've been in Proverbs in my quiet time. Lots of verses about don't think too highly of yourself. And Paul's saying, 12.3, don't overestimate yourself. Part of this renewed mind getting transformed is correcting 
our judgment so that we see ourselves with a more realistic, biblical view of who we really are and not an over-exaggerated view of who we are. Jerry Bridges explains the reason he wrote a book called Respectable Sins, which is kind of an intriguing title, isn't it? Here's why he wrote it. He observed among Christians, some were busy denouncing the sins of our culture, such as homosexuality and abortion, and yet often seem to be lacking in appropriate awareness that they are sinners too. And in another context, he mentions visiting churches and singing Amazing Grace, and they had taken out the word wretch and substituted a softer, nicer word, as if it's too negative to think of ourselves as wretches. We're better than that. We're more respectable than that. I'm not going to sing I'm a wretch. And isn't that what Romans 2 is talking about? We need to be careful of thinking, I'm not like those wretches in Romans 1. I'm not like those wretches I read about in the news. I'm not like the wretches I know at work. I'm pretty respectable. And the point of Romans 2 is to say, we need to remember all of us are big sinners. No little sinners at all. We're all big sinners. And therefore, we all desperately need to be rescued by Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, so, Father, thank you that you knew how bad off we were, that nothing less than Jesus coming and dying and rising again would save people like us who were so dead in sin, so caught in our wrong ways, in our evil ways. And we could not free ourselves. We couldn't work our way out of it. It was only your free grace and mercy. So thank you for designing a way to save us. I pray for, again, for anyone who has not experienced this salvation in Christ, that you would have mercy on their soul. They would come to know him. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us to think rightly of ourselves. Yes, we are so thankful for who we are now in Christ. <laughs> Accepted, loved, forgiven, but, Lord, I pray we'd never lose a sense of the fact that we're still sinners. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, I Need You. And just the background of this, there's a song years ago that said, people need the Lord, which is true. And I thought of this song just saying, it's not just other people that need the Lord, it's I need the Lord. So let's stand and sing that today.